0: Palm Sunday is the calm before the storm.
1: What begins in triumph and festivity ends in ominous uncertainty and the knowledge that the story unfolding here will get worse before it gets any better. It's a tense time, the celebration of Passover in first century Jerusalem. Occupied by Rome, Jews from all across the region make pilgrimage to the city to celebrate. To celebrate what? Well, Passover, which is their liberation from slavery in Egypt. Now, insofar as the Roman authorities understand Jewish history and theology, they know enough to realize that this is an annual recipe for protest, violence, and maybe even revolution. Now Pilate, the Roman governor, arrives from his fortress in Caesarea with a detachment of soldiers to maintain order. Jerusalem is a powder keg that's just waiting to explode. And then Jesus arrives, the match that will light the proverbial fuse.
0: A reading from Luke chapter 19. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphagee and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. as he was now approaching the path down from the mount of olives the whole multitude of the disciples approaching the path um, began to praise god joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven some of the pharisees in the crowd said to him teacher order your disciples to stop he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen.
1: Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. look i don't watch the oscars okay i mean i don't want to sound like a hipster which i probably am in a curmudgeonly middle-aged sort of way it's just that the kind of things i enjoy aren't popular enough to win an award you know my taste in movies and just about everything else is somehow both countercultural and profoundly uncool which kind of leaves me on the outside looking in in a cultural sense a passive observer of someone else's interests. And frankly, I'd rather watch Conan the Barbarian again than watch Will Smith get yet another Oscar. Of course, I didn't realize that Will Smith was going to reenact the scene where Conan punches a llama that spit on him. You know the scene I'm talking about, right? Llama? No one? This is why I don't watch the Oscars. I know it's been talked to death at this point, and the last thing I want to do is jump on the cultural bandwagon or relitigate the latest scandal du jour. But I actually think something really significant happened here that no one is talking about, at least not explicitly. So as everyone probably knows, Chris Rock, the host of The Evening, made a joke at the expense of Jada Pinkett Smith, Will Smith's wife. It was in poor taste, to be sure, uh, and I think we all know what happened next. Will Smith, four-time Oscar winner, got up from his seat, slapped Chris Rock across the face on live television. And whatever else might have happened that night, it was overshadowed by this brief and unprecedented explosion of violence. And by the next day, it was all anyone could talk about. Even the war had taken a back seat to this incident, as pundits and celebrities and everyone else and their brother and sister all felt the need to weigh in with their opinion. Now, for my part, I found myself wondering why this was such a big deal in the first place. This is all the stuff of tabloids, you know, hardly real news in light of everything that's going on in the world. And that's when I realized that something larger must be happening here. You see, via this singular incident, folks are trying to work out our collective philosophy of violence. When is it acceptable? Is it ever acceptable? And as we watch the horrific images of destruction pour out of Ukraine, haunting portraits of brutality that have only grown more sinister in recent days since the massacre in Bucha, and as our leaders struggle to determine an appropriate response, this is the question on everyone's mind. Should we establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine, lending direct military assistance? Should we send in the troops? When is violence justified? Is it ever justified? It's hard to see the consequences of war, much less the nauseating realities of genocide that seem to be unfolding. Regardless, we cannot seem to reach a national consensus on this or on anything else. Even within our own country, we're trying to determine when force is warranted and whether might ever makes right. According to numerous polls, about 30 to 40% of Americans believe that political violence against our own government is sometimes justified and may even be necessary for the good of our nation. The incident at the Oscars was more than just a slap. It's an open question about violence and how much we are willing to tolerate. Now, as a student of philosophy, I was a philosophy minor in college, I've always found Nietzsche especially fascinating, although I don't always agree with him. He's a compelling writer, but his ideas are problematic. And one of these, perhaps his most famous, is his notion of what he calls the will to power. Nietzsche was always more poetic than precise, and the will to power has been broadly interpreted, sometimes with disastrous results. Hitler embraced the idea in a ham-fisted sort of way, and it's not hard to imagine why. In his seminal work, Beyond Good and Evil, Nietzsche writes this, Mutually refraining from wounding each other, from violence and from exploitation, these can, in a certain crude sense, become good habits among individuals, if conditions exist for that. However, as soon as people wanted to take this principle further, and, where possible, establish it as the basic principle of society— It immediately showed itself for what it is, as the willed denial of life, as the principle of disintegration and decay. Exploitation is not part of a depraved or incomplete and primitive society, Nietzsche continues. It belongs in the essential nature of what is living as a basic organic function. Exploitation is a consequence of the real will to power, which is simply the will to live. So in other words, exploitation and violence, the will to power, the need to impose that will on our environment and on other people, well, it's just human nature. It's inevitable. It's who we are. Even as the body within which individuals treat each other as equals, he writes, sounds a lot like the Oscars, incidentally, We will have to be an incarnate will to power. It will strive to grow, spread, seize, become predominant, not from any morality or immorality, but because it is living and because life simply is will to power. I imagine that Putin subscribes to this philosophy as well. Now, it's telling that Nietzsche uses the word exploitation here as it has broader implications than what we typically think of as violence. It forces us to broaden our understanding, even if I don't agree with his basic point. I would argue that cruelty, inequality, and yes, exploitation are absolutely violent. They all serve to diminish another person and their prospects. And unlike the horrors of war, these are things that we all encounter every day. This is gonna seem a little trivial by comparison, but but I think it's important. Just last week, there was a mass exodus of employees from an Applebee's franchise in Springfield. You may have heard about this. Apparently, someone leaked a corporate memo that speaks to the kind of everyday exploitation I'm talking about. Most of our employee base and potential employee base live paycheck to paycheck, an executive wrote in the leaked email. Any increase in gas prices cuts into their disposable income. As inflation continues to climb and gas prices continue to go up, that means more hours. Employees will need to work to maintain their current level of living. So he clearly recognizes the problem here, and he's not wrong, you know. uh, About two-thirds of Americans live paycheck to paycheck and can't even afford a $500 car repair or emergency room visit. But instead of, oh, I don't know, giving people a raise, he figures he can leverage the economic desperation to squeeze more hours out of the workforce for the benefit of shareholders. And if you ask me, that's a kind of violence too. The imposing of one's will to the detriment of someone else. That's why they call it class warfare. The same could be said of our pillaging the natural resources and the earth when we wound creation even the stones cry out. Now, Frederick Nietzsche may be correct in so far as the imposition of one's will is a part of our biological nature. But the Christian, which Nietzsche certainly was not, believes that it is our charge to carry out not our will, but the will of God, which differs significantly from our own, and which never wills or desires. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem astride a donkey affords us a pretty clear view of God's will. In the ancient world, rulers would ride horses into conquered territory accompanied by the army as a show of force. But if their intent was to demonstrate that they came in peace or when perhaps returning home to their own city, They would ride astride a donkey, a humble beast of burden, to demonstrate their intentions. Now, I can't stress this enough. First century Jerusalem was occupied territory. It was not an active war zone, but it was bent beneath Roman oppression nonetheless. Summary executions and crucifixions were common occurrences. And on the same morning... That Jesus arrived at the city gates from the Mount of Olives in the east, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, rolled into town from the west atop his mighty warhorse. This was the time of Passover, and Jews from across the region had, had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. Now, Pilate was there ostensibly to keep the peace, as autocrats everywhere like to claim when they violently put down peaceful protest. And what we have here on Palm Sunday is a contest of wills. On the one side, Pilate, who wills state-sanctioned violence. And on the other, we have Jesus, who wills only peace. Now, it's not a passive, mind-your-own-business sort of peace. He's actively antagonizing Pilate with this donkey business. The Pharisees understand this, and they beg Jesus to knock it off before Things get out of hand before someone gets hurt. To which Jesus replies, If these crowds were silent, even the stones would cry out. Jesus is not content to stand by and watch his people suffer. And yet he also refuses to take up arms to defend them. So as we consider how much violence we can tolerate in our society, where does that leave us? Now, if a genocide wasn't brewing in Ukraine or China or Yemen, I could stand up here and tell you with great confidence that violence is never the answer. That's what Jesus tells us. Humans will power, but God wills peace every time. But while civilians are being systematically exterminated and the only thing that can protect them is more violence, I I don't honestly know what to believe. I'll tell you, I've been, been struggling with this text, like Jacob wrestling with the angel, trying to look at it from every angle, trying to conjure up some kind of theological loophole, trying to find something to justify the use of force. To protect the men and women and children that are dying. And if it's there, I can't find it. Jesus, even with the best intentions in the world, refuses to go to war. Not even to save his own life. Now in effect, if we want to draw parallels between this conflict and the one that's unfolding in real time before us, Jesus is responding much as we have with compassion with truth and with nonviolence. but the truth is I'm not sure if any of this is saving lives and if I'm being honest there's a part of me that wants to send all of the tanks and fighter jets and drones that we've amassed over the decades these weapons that we poured all of our Tax dollars into instead of investing in healthcare or education or social services. I want to send all these weapons to Ukraine and put a stop to this madness. But nothing is so simple. In war, everyone gets blood on their hands. And America isn't without its own history of violence. So maybe Jesus is right. Maybe violence only begets. More violence and we have to admit that another world war will only lead to more suffering so I'm afraid I don't have any answers for you as to what should be done no amount of theological training or scriptural analysis can find a win-win solution here there are only bad and worse decisions and I thank God that I'm not the one who has to make them because honestly I don't know what I would do. Now, in a sense, maybe this is all academic. I mean, we're not the ones that are guiding foreign policy. We're not making these decisions, but it doesn't mean that we have to stand on the outside looking in as passive observers of someone else's interests. Even the stones cry out after all, and we can all do something, and we must. We can do what's ours to do. We can support the folks for instance, who managed to get out and fled to Poland by funding Wojciech's mission and the good people of tension that have opened their homes and upended their lives to help these refugees. Wojciech was telling me before the service today that in Polish, tension actually means now act. We must act. We must do what we can. And we can also protest against violence and exploitation in all of its forms on our own shores. Violence against workers, against the earth, against the poor. In his novel Candide, the philosopher Voltaire argues against the notion that we are living in the best of all possible worlds, as one of his contemporaries claimed. He might indeed say, this is the worst timeline. He portrays a world of rampant violence, disease, poverty, and war. And In the end, faced with it all, he can only conclude that we must tend our own gardens. We must tend our gardens. We can and must do what is ours to do. Ring the bell that we can ring. For even the stones cry out, and we cry with them. Hosanna! God save us. Amen.